0: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And that's when I fell in love with entrepreneurship because it's just, it's the great equalizer. Your business doesn't care whether you have $5 or $5,000 or $500,000 in the bank. Your business doesn't care your age, your race, your ethnicity, your gender. Your business doesn't really care about any of those things. Your customers don't even really care. All they really care about is can you create a real solution to a real problem for them, for these real people.
1: Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Hey everyone, today's guest is John Meese.
2: John is what we like to call a serial entrepreneur. He's the CEO of Cowork, co-founder of Notable, and a host of Thrive School Podcast. And if that's not enough, he's also a best-selling author. He has a lot of hands-on experience in entrepreneurship and scaling a business. John likes to point out, relationships yield better results in business. So every business is actually a platform for solving real-life problems for real people. John is very passionate about entrepreneurship and believes it's a unique way to serve humanity and add value to the world. Since business owners often get stuck, John's goal is to help them survive and thrive. In this episode, we chat about the bootstrapping process and how John was able to build three businesses from scratch, why most entrepreneurs quit, and how to avoid a business failure. The unique power of entrepreneurship and its role in serving humanity. And last but not least, why relationships lead to better business results. John truly has a unique ability to bring out the passion in others. This episode will make you feel more inspired and motivated. Thanks as always for listening. Hey, John, thanks so much for being on the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing so well, Tyler. Thank you so much for having me here. It is my joy to be here.
2: Yeah, I'm, I've been excited to talk with you. So I always like to start out with, can you share a little bit about yourself? Uh, you know, what makes you tick? What got you here today type of thing?
0: Sure. Well, my name is John Meese. You know, think of it like, uh, well, I don't know if this is necessarily relevant, but whenever someone tries to spell my name, I say, you know, it's like, you know, goose, geese, moose. You would think <laughs> the plural of moose would be meese as well, but I digress. But uh, everything I do comes back to helping entrepreneurs create thriving businesses. That's really the core of of my my business is the core of my my life and where i spend a lot of my time and energy so i wrote a book which i think is part of what we're talking today you know called survive and thrive how to build a profitable business in any economy including this one and that was my response to the 2020 crisis and not just COVID-19, but all of the other things that were going on in the world along with that to say that i wanted to create a step-by-step playbook that anyone can use to start and build and, and scale from scratch a thriving business without having to invest in you know, or to rely on, you know, tens of thousands or millions of dollars from venture capital investors, which may or may not ever show up. So, but how I got there is that, you know, I I studied economics in college. I worked for economics research lab. Uh, I've got my name on a few papers out there. Pretty boring. I wouldn't recommend reading them, but uh, (laughs) I kind of went on, I was on the PhD track for economics so I could be a professor. It was like, you know, like the big goal. And, um, then I found out that you don't actually in the modern world have to be a professor to teach. There's actually people everywhere looking to learn things, and you can just go on the wonderful world of the internet and teach them, and they love it. So I started blogging and built an online course and uh, coaching business. And that was my full time focus, you know, shortly after college, not immediately after college, but shortly after. And I just fell in love with entrepreneurship. I mean, that was kind of an accident for me because I was, again, I'm a first generation college student. So I come from this family of just like generation after generation of like bad, money decisions. And just like how some families pass down wealth from generation to generation, other families pass down poverty. And it's just not just the lack of resources, it's the lack of connections. It's the lack of a, you know, a secure network. It's the lack of just like the good thinking about how do you make good financial decisions. But I was supposed to fix that. I was sent off as the oldest child in my family and as the, you know, the poster boy of the future to go be a first generation college student, get a couple degrees, which I did. I got a couple of pieces of paper that say I know some things. And it didn't really dramatically change my life. And that was kind of a letdown. But then I started saying, okay, well, what does? And that's when I fell in love with entrepreneurship because it's just—it's the great equalizer. Your business doesn't care whether you have $5 or $5,000 or $500,000 in the bank. Your business doesn't care your age, your race, your ethnicity, your gender. Your business doesn't really care about any of those things. Your customers don't even really care. All they really care about is, can you create a real solution to a real problem for them, for these real people? So- Obviously, I get kind of worked up and excited about that. I love it. I love it. Yeah. So what I do now is I help entrepreneurs do that.
2: You know, I'm a first-generation college graduate too. And I I can so much relate to, (laughs) like, once you get it done and you're like the first one in your family to do it, like you expect some golden light to come down from the sky and anoint you as the next, you know, multimillionaire or whatever. And nothing happens. It's just like, okay, well now what do I do?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what I exactly, yeah, exactly. I don't know if that, I don't know what, but what I was waiting for to happen, but it was just the big dream. It was like, if only we can get somebody to graduate college, you know, that's, that's it, you know, that's going to be the difference maker. And my brother actually, who's only a couple of years younger than me, he, when he was thinking about dropping out of college, then my parents were like furious. They're like, no, how could you? Like, John, talk to him. You graduated college. And I was like, well, Danny, my brother, I was like, Danny, what are you studying? Graphic design. He was like, you already have a freelance business where you've got paying graphic design clients. Have they ever asked you for a copy of your degree? He's like, no, all they want is my portfolio. I was like, yeah, you should probably drop out. Now he's the creative director or the director of creative services for like a fancy schmancy luxury ag- like design agency in New York City. You know, but like
2: <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah. yeah, it it is true. I mean, when you know, it's definitely nice to have it and it's a feel good from an accomplishment thing, but it's
0: a cool looking piece of paper.
2: Yeah, it's also not a be all. I'd be curious, you know, you've called yourself a serial entrepreneur. Yeah, what are some of the ventures you've been in? What are can you share some struggles that you've had or just some things that you've overcome personally? Sure. To get out of, you know, the challenges of running a business and growing a business.
0: I'd be happy to. I mean, the first thing is I always like to clarify that I am a serial entrepreneur, but not like Fruit Loops, right? Like <laughs> (laughs) like multiple (laughs) businesses, you know? So just, just in case anybody's like, what are you talking about? You're a serial entrepreneur, you know? But the second thing is I would say, like, I don't think I woke up one day and was like, like, I didn't decide to be a serial entrepreneur. I decided to start building businesses and and serve people. And then somebody pointed out, they were like, man, you're like a serial entrepreneur. And I thought, yeah. Also, I do (laughs) love Froot Loops. They taste great, but that's completely unrelated. I was like, yeah, I guess I am. Like, I guess I did this. So I got into what you would call bootstrapping businesses, right? Where you're not getting a massive loan. You're not getting venture capital investment, but you're just trying to find out like, what is the smallest version of this that I can create right now that solves someone's problem and scales that. And so my first business, you know, I started blogging and building. It's funny. I started, okay. So pay attention to your customers. I think is the first lesson and not, and I don't mean your followers, I mean your customers, because the first thing I did was I started a blog talking about simplifying technology. And so I had all these like tutorials and blog posts and videos about how to use technology. And then one of the, the first course I created was called Unlock the Get Notice Theme. And it was this online course with like 45 videos in it, way too much content in hindsight. But it was the course on how to use this very clunky piece of software that only 3,000 people in the world use. But because it's such a small audience, I was able to find a customer support forum and become super active there and build a following of those people and just develop a reputation as someone who's willing to help and serve. And then also like run a giveaway targeted to those people And so I built a little list of 147 email subscribers. And then I did a full-on course launch, the same level of like the same kind of course launch that people like, if you're familiar with like Jeff Walker or Ray Edwards Mm -hmm. or Ryan Levesque or any of those guys, I did like the same launch that you would do for like a list of 100,000 subscribers, but I did it to 147 subscribers and I made $10,000 in a week. Wow. And at the time that was... Well, no, even now that's a lot of money, right? Like, like ten thousand dollars a week. There are very few things you can do in the world that are legal where you can do that, right? <laughs> and so I was just like, I just staring at that. I was like, I was hooked, and I was like, this is amazing. And so I wrote this detailed blog post of how I, you know, how I launched an online course and made ten thousand three hundred and fifteen dollars and seventy six cents. And it's got like step by step screenshots and the whole thing and that kind of stuff. I was just excited about it. I wanted to document it. That started to take off. Way more than the software tutorials part of my business. And so every time I would like run, I would like a little promotion over here to sell like a course or you know affiliate software of some kind, then I would document what I was doing. And that stuff took off way more. And so I started shifting to saying, okay, well, I help people create online businesses. Like I just, that's what I'm, that's what people actually want. That's what people are asking me for more of. And so that became my focus. Well. Then a mentor of mine who I had learned a lot from Michael Hyatt, he reached out and saw what I was doing and said, Hey, we need someone to run a multi-million-dollar division of our company called platform university, which is all about teaching people how to build online businesses. Could you do that? And I said, yes. And so I did that for three years, ran that membership site, scaled it, and then we sold it. I mean, this was also behind the scenes, the strategy from the beginning was that Michael wanted to get out of that business, but he didn't want to abandon it. So we optimized it, systemized it, and then sold it to Pete Vargas, another in- online influencer. And so I helped manage that whole process, which was incredibly educational, just in terms of jumping from my little like $10,000 a week business to managing a, you know, $1.5 million budget, you know, (laughs) like, so that was, that was a jump, but I learned a lot along the way. And I got to literally every week was doing live video coaching. And so over those three years was able to work with thousands of bloggers, podcasters, YouTubers, consultants, speakers, and authors, and just pick up some patterns of what was working and not working. I was able to teach that in platform university, but then I was also able to take that and say, you know what? I, I think there needs to be a next level for like, I love how big the creator space is becoming of online people. Like, well, Tyler, like you and I, we both have podcasts, right? So like on my podcast, thrive school, I interview authors about their book and about entrepreneurship and it's, it's valuable, but the reality is like the internet world is kind of over here in on one side, like, and there's like the in real life world of like chambers of commerces and like small business associations. And they feel like they're in different decades. And so that really frustrated me. And so I launched Cowork, Inc., which is my core company now. And so this is where I focus all my energy, really. And Cowork, Inc., you know, it's an entrepreneur support organization where we help entrepreneurs create thriving businesses. We have a co-working space. I'm in it right now, you know, about to sign the lease on a second location. So our plan is to have these embassies of entrepreneurship, which, yes, they're a coworking space. But when you walk in the door, you can't miss this giant sign that says, Entrepreneurs Welcome." That from the, from the minute you walk in, we're just putting a, a flag in the sand and saying, like, this is this is where we are. This is what we're here to do. And so in our community, now we've developed a reputation where we have training classes on how to start a business, how to scale a business. Last year, that meant how to pivot a business. And so mirroring a lot of kind of like what the online information marketers kind of have have done really well and say, like, okay, but how can we take that? and create physical footprints for that. And so that's what I'm really excited about right now. That's also why I wrote this book, because I wanted to be able to have like an intro, like if you do nothing else, read this book, (laughs) Survive and Thrive, and you can start, and it's in the subtitle, How to Build a Profitable Business in Any Economy, including this one.
2: Yeah, I love that. You know, one thing you mentioned when you started out, you talked about bootstrapping. Yeah. I love that term, and I love the meaning of the term. I think it gets lost a lot of times when people start businesses. They oftentimes, you know, expensive website, Mm -hmm. a lot of advertising. They're doing all these crazy things that they're outlaying a lot of cash or trying to maybe in some cases it's credit and they're not really bootstrapping. And I think bootstrapping, and I'm wondering if you agree with this, bootstrapping kind of forces you to figure it out. Do you agree with that?
0: Oh, holy 100%. My first business, I saved up some money and I put $500 in a business checking account. And I was like, okay, now what are you going to do? And already I had like a subscription to a couple pieces of software, right? Like I was using ConvertKit to run my email list. I still use that. And that was, you know, $29 a month. And I was like, you know, and my domain's like $15 a year. You can do the math pretty quickly. And you're like, that money will run out. (laughs) And so I started, you had to get creative. So I looked at ConvertKit and I said, okay, I'm paying $29 a month for this software. And actually as my email list grows, it gets more expensive. But how can I make it pay for itself? And so I became an affiliate for ConvertKit and they have a very generous 30% a month affiliate program, where if you get someone to sign up as a customer you get 30% of whatever they pay for as long as they're a customer. So I didn't just like post a link on Twitter. I created a free three-part video course on like email marketing, 101 using one using ConvertKit and every video promoted ConvertKit. And I launched that. And then I wrote a blog posts about comparing ConvertKit to other, other software that I use and that kind of stuff, which to my audience was genuinely helpful, useful content. And I knew that if I got three customers that paid for my ConvertKit account <laughs> for life. I got a lot more than three customers. I became one of the top ten ConvertKit affiliates r- right away, and then I mean, they've paid me over a thousand dollars a month for five years now. So, <laughs> I mean, that's nice, you know? Yeah, because uh, it's recurring. So, like, I haven't actually—I they would like me to do more promotions right now. I'm sure. I mean, this—I guess this counts. Maybe I'm promoting them. They're great software, but I haven't really run a promotion for ConvertKit since, like, in four years. But I make over a thousand dollars a month because I set that up in the front end of saying, getting creative, like you said, of saying like, what can I do with the resources I have? So that's just one example. But you're right. Bootstrapping is all about saying, okay, how can I look at my customers as my investors? How can I present them a product offering that's genuinely going to solve a problem in their life enough so that they're going to put money forward? And then how can I use that money to fuel the growth of my business rather than relying on debt or investors to to fuel the growth of your business? And it does, it's a different path, right? Because it typically means it's a slower climb. It can be a little more, you have to be patient and you have to get creative. But also I think it's a better use of funds and money. I mean, so many venture capital companies are notorious for just like just burning through money without any real progress to show.
2: There were some things in your book that really spoke to me and I'd love to just kind of dig in and and just get in your mind a little bit. One of the things you said, there is no shortage of opportunity today there is a shortage of execution. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious what you mean by that. I mean, there's some of it's intuitive, but I'd just dig in a little deeper what you mean.
0: Yeah, and maybe that once upon a time you lived in a small town and you looked around and you thought, you know what? There's no blacksmith shop here. I should open a blacksmith shop. And therefore you did that. And then you found the opportunity. And then that was the key to your success was you became the blacksmith shop owner in your town, right? There may have been a point in time where opportunity really mattered. But the reality is today, there are millions of opportunities left and right. There's opportunities to go into existing businesses and help them streamline processes and scale and save money so they can pay you money for that. There's opportunities to go out and just, I mean, entrepreneurs solve problems for a profit. That's what we do. So look around, everywhere you see a problem, that's an opportunity. So I always caution entrepreneurs I'm working with to say like, don't try to look for the genius idea or the genius opportunity that's going to be the difference maker. Look for something that you can sustain over a long period of time because, and I love this, my friend, Curtis Morley, who wrote, who's also an author, he wrote the book, The Entrepreneur's Paradox. He talks about this, about how many of us know the stat that 50, over 50% of businesses fail within the first years, the first five years that they're in business. But he makes the point that small businesses don't actually fail. Entrepreneurs quit. That's really what happens. And I love that because it's true. Right. And so the reality is you have to find something that you can do, can have focused execution on over the long, long term, because those are the businesses that succeed. It's where you're willing to say like, yes, I'm willing to do this for two years in a day and whatever that this is, and it's going to shift. It's going to change. But that also means you shouldn't just pick something random. You know, you should pick something that you genuinely enjoy and are passionate about because it's going to take a lot of work. And so whenever someone comes to me with like a brilliant idea, they're like, I've got it. No one's thought of this. It's the most brilliant idea ever. It's a great opportunity Then I'm like, okay, great. Why don't you go do some work on it? And come back to me once you've got your first paying customer. Because that's your first job, by the way. Your first job as an entrepreneur is to get one paying customer. And once you've done that, then we've crossed the first threshold of seriousness. It's, you know, I love helping entrepreneurs, but I also want to caution people that have that idea to say, like, you need to make sure that you can execute it, but also that you're trying to solve a problem people actually care about. Because if you're in the McDonald's drive-thru knocking a windows saying, hey, would you join my CrossFit gym? It doesn't matter how cool your (laughs) gym is. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Right. They're not interested.
2: Unless your theme is serving Big Macs or something to start every workout. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, that, no, no, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, on that note, you know, profit sometimes we talk about more profit, more profit. And sometimes that can have a negative connotation depending on who you're talking to. It's just all about profit. But I love, and you talk about in your book, you say, you know, you think of profit as a report card for how well I served humanity. So how well humanity served through profit. Can you kind of explain that, How you, how you you know, take on that. Cause I like that it's deep.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, if I could back up and just talk about kind of like the theory of economics for a minute, Yeah. when you look at like wealth, like wealth is created when a transaction takes place where something, some new value has been added into things. And so most careers, even if you're making money, you're not creating wealth. Like in other words, like it's like an exchange, you know, like even someone who invests in the stock market or invests in other businesses, what they're doing is they're giving entrepreneurs access to financial resources to create wealth. If you're working a job and you're doing successful, you're giving the business owners the resources and you being on the team to help them create wealth. But wealth creation is the job of entrepreneurs. And so literally you make the world wealthier. It's not a zero sum game. It's not like when I become more successful, therefore you have to become less successful. It's that when I become more successful as an entrepreneur, I'm actually adding wealth into the world and making the world full of humans, a wealthier place to live. And so because of that, and because of the fact that that wealth comes from creating value by solving problems, by creating real solutions to real problems for real people then I always look at profit as the ultimate scorecard of how well I've served humanity because business is serving humanity when it's done right. It's servant. I mean, entrepreneurship is, is servanthood. I mean, that's like like when it's done well and it's done right, that's what entrepreneurship is. But you still need a scorecard because, they're, because nonprofits are also serving, but they're also out on the streets with coffers asking for money all day, every day. And so the difference is that entrepreneurship, you can create a self-perpetuating organization that can pay for itself. But the reason why profit is that ultimate scorecard is because it profit is actually the, you know, it's a combination of what I I like to think of it as a combination of three different factors in one. One of them is your effectiveness. If you are not effective as an organization, you're not going to generate revenue, right? So you could say it's a measure of revenue, which sure, but revenue is actually just an indicator of your effectiveness. How effective are you at solving a problem and getting people to know you can solve that problem? But profit is also a measure of your efficiency or your efficacy. If you want to use a fancy word, <laughs> it's a measure of your efficacy because no, I guess if efficacy is actually effectiveness. So I'm distracting you now. Sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll put aside the fancy words. Efficiency is about how well you manage the resources to pull off that. So you could say, yeah, this is your expenses, right? But it's your time. It's your energy. It's 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 how much energy, time, and money does it take you to actually produce the solution? That's the efficacy Sorry, the efficiency component. Oh man. All right. I just got out of traffic court. You'll just have to forgive me. I'm like, <laughs> there's a courthouse literally That's, is out my window. I'm staring at it. So
2: that will that will kill your brain. So you <laughs> yeah, are sorry. full you're fully excused for uh, so, some you. some brain gaps there.
0: <laughs> yeah. But the third is enjoyability. And and people are like, what? Where does that show up on a PL? Where on a profit and loss statement do you see enjoyability? Right. Enjoyability is that third factor that affects whether or not you can sustain your work over the long term. The average business does not turn a profit for the first year and a half. Now, that's a long time. If you read my book, I'm not going to ask you to wait an hour and a half to turn profit. That's I'm going to help you do it sooner. But still, can you do whatever you're doing for a year and a half without pay? Like, do you enjoy it that much? Do you care about it that much? Because that's going to affect your long-term profit as a company. So that's why I, look, I love profit as a square card for how well I've served humanity. It also takes away a lot of the guilt about profit because exactly, you're like, yeah. man, I got to go back and serve more.
2: Yeah. I love it. That's, I think, what, why it really spoke to me because yeah. sometimes we are a little bit conditioned to when we talk about profit mm-hmm. that you know we're supposed to feel guilty about wanting more profit, more profit. And I like that there's a little bit of a, an angle tweak there of, hey, you're helping people and the more profit you're making, that means you're helping humanity as a whole.
0: Yeah. And you can help people in other industries, but nothing, I mean, entrepreneurship is so unique. Nothing creates value like entrepreneurship. Even look at like nonprofits, government organizations, government organizations, they rely on entrepreneurs to create wealth so they can take some of it to then do other things with that money that then they can claim credit for. But they couldn't have done it without the wealth from the entrepreneur.
2: Right now, I know you talk about systematizing a business. Mm-hmm. Just be curious, like what are some examples that you could give us for what is systematizing a business? Like, what are some things you'll look for with clients you work with, yeah? And how they can, you know, improve efficiency and systematize their business?
0: Sure. Well, I've actually got a free assessment on this. Okay. It's in the book too, but you can go to yourthrivescore.com and just take a, a questionnaire about your business, and you'll get a numerical score, your Thrive Score, for how well your business is optimized and set up to thrive. Now, I care a lot about systems because like a business, when it's done well, is a system that generates wealth. This is a theme we've kind of come back to a couple of times, but that's what it is. That's what a business is. It's not another child. Although there are some studies that show entrepreneurs create the same attachments to their business that they do to their children. And I have three children. And so I think about that often. (laughs) Your business is a system that generates wealth by serving humanity. So you have to have core systems in place now, I'm not going to tell you that you need a 30-page standard operating procedure manual with detailed tutorials in every piece of your business. Maybe your business is at a point where that makes sense if you're kind of like franchise level or corporate level where you're you know trying to spread more of it. But for most businesses, there are core nine systems you need in place to truly thrive, to create a business that generates wealth, so fuels your lifestyle. Three of those are marketing systems. Three of those are sales systems. Three of those are finance systems. Spoiler alert, my book, Survive and Thrive, chapters two through 10, each one is just one of those systems. So it's, there's three <laughs> chapters in marketing, three on sales, three on finance. But from what I found, and by the way, it's not just from my own experience. Obviously, I have some experience, but I know that I'm not. Well, A, I'm young, right? Like, let's just say it. I'm 30. I look like I'm 12 if I take the glasses <laughs> off, especially. But that's okay. That's okay. I started working early, but that's not the point. When I wrote this book, I wrote the first draft and I thought, you know, that's pretty good. I feel good about that as far as this is a plan that's going to help people. But I knew that I wanted a more a more of a three-dimensional perspective. And so that's why I went out, if you read the book, which you, Tyler, you may have noticed, seen this. There's a ton of quotes throughout the whole thing.
2: That's actually what I really liked about it. You yeah. used a lot of, I don't know if social proof is the right word, but you had a lot of authority figures that you were quoting and bringing into the discussion that I thought was really cool.
0: Yeah, because rather than just go off of my own experience, I went out and I interviewed thirty different successful entrepreneurs that I considered some of the best and brightest minds in business today. Many of them, my mentors, either directly or remotely through like podcasts and things like that. But I interviewed them for the book and was able to include then quotes from people like you know Michael Hyatt and Ray Edwards and Pat Flynn and Philip Stutz and Rabbi Daniel Lappin and Casey Graham and many many others. And so once I did all those interviews, then I transcribed those pulled out what I felt like were the common themes that showed up over and over again. And that's what the book then became focused around. So I went back to my rough draft and I said, look, I need need to reorder this because I had put all the finance stuff in the front and I reorder this and put all that in the back. And then I need to make sure that this system is consistent with what all these entrepreneurs in different industries are saying. That's why honestly the book is so good because it's not just me, because I was able to include a lot of far more successful, far more experienced entrepreneurs and just, and distill that and combine that with my own story. To have a step by step plan that people can use.
1: If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens, and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands on business. To schedule a free, no pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business.
2: So one of the things you bring up is relationships are greater than results. Yeah. Can we talk about that a little bit? I love it. It, It's just really three. It's two words and then the greater sign pointing towards relationships. It's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to audio say it, but it's just cool because it has big impact. I'd be curious. You know, Give me your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah so I have a, my desk is also a whiteboard so for like a year I had like written in the corner of my desk relationships are greater than results which if you can visualize this the greater than sign if you remember the shark you know the shark eats the bigger thing in math you know like relationships are greater than results well it also looks like an arrow in other words when you look at it it's more powerful if you can see it than hear it but when you look at it it says two things at the same time a relationships are greater than results and b relationships lead to results and that's, that's something that a lot of, I didn't get when I first started business. Cause I was like, no, I got to go work. And they're like, well, yeah, but like, you know, your network is your net worth. People would say things like that. And I'm like, what does that mean? I don't, I don't understand what that means. You, you mean if I know more people, I can ask them for more money? Like, it's like, but the, the truth is that relationships on every level, what well, business is, is a form of relationships. The reality is, that's why I say that your business is built on creating real solutions to real problems for real people, because so often in business, we get distracted by focusing on customers or sales or followers or likes, but we forget we're talking about real human beings with hopes, dreams, fears, frustrations, you know, mortgage payments, dirty diapers <laughs> on their kids, all that kind of stuff. And so you have to, so knowing that allows you to make your business with your customers about relationships, but also the same thing with your peers, instead of looking at a competitor, Instead, say like that, there's another real person coming in into this industry. This morning, I took a walk for 30 minutes down the street at six o'clock in the morning just to chat with someone else who's starting an incubator in my town of like, which Columbia is like 40,000 people. I started an entrepreneur center in my town. I thought that was, it was small for that. And then somebody else comes in and starting an incubator. And they like, the instinct would at first is to be like, okay, this is a really small town. Are we sure we really need both of these things? But instead it's like, no, let's, let's take a walk and let's talk about how we can serve each other because we're allies in in the bigger scheme of things. But here's one of the things I love from a humanitarian perspective. Transactions are what glue us together. It's the, the fact that we need each other is why we have community. If you think about the friendships that you've had over the years that have just fallen off, and you don't really know why, you're like, well, they never did anything to offend me. It's just you never, you, you stop having use for each other. And that's not a utilitarian thing. That's like literally like society is built on like, I need you, you need me. So it's like either you're watching my kids or I'm shopping, for, I'm buying coffee at your coffee shop. Or we work together or like, those are the relationships where, I mean, the relationship is built on this, this back and forth of just of give and take and give and take. And so when you have a friendship that exists solely based on like, yeah, dude, let's go grab a movie or let's grab a drink or something after a while, you don't need each other. And so you, you just naturally drift apart. And so business is just a, a combination of all those transactions in a, you know, in one hub of what forms the basis of our relationships as human beings. So yes, relationships lead to results and they're greater than results.
2: Yeah, I love it. It's it's a great quote or a great great slogan to go by. I am curious, no conversation would be complete without talking about cash flow. Sure. How does a business adapt to positive cash flow over time? I know you talk about it in the book. Yeah. I'd love to get your thoughts on that.
0: Well, I think the first thing in my experience is that a lot of business owners just aren't calculating it. It's not a factor. Like they may be familiar with you as a business owner listening to this, maybe like, okay, I've looked at a a profit and loss statement. I know I, I also looked at my bank statements, right? Like I know how much money is in the bank. But the question is, for each individual transaction with your customers, are you cash flow positive or cash flow negative? Or somewhere in the middle. It's a spectrum. You know, cash flow positive would be that they pay you up front, and then you spend all of your time and energy creating the product or service and delivering it afterwards. Because then you get them. It's cash flow positive because you get the money first, and then you do the thing. Cash flow negative is where, like, you do all of the work and effort and then hope they pay you. But then even if they do pay you, even if you make a profit, you had to spend everything before that. I was talking to, I mean, and this comes out in little ways, like I was talking to a friend of mine that owns a Chick-fil-A and he was saying that actually, no. So, well, I have a couple of friends who own, re- lots of my friends who own restaurants, but I'm forgetting it's a different friend, Paul Marino, who owns a, mm-hmm. a pizza shop. And he was explaining that even with the labor, you would think that he was saying, he's saying that he is actually cash flow positive because he doesn't pay his employees every day. He pays them every two weeks. And so he can sell all the pizza, you know, and then pay them. But the first thing is just to get aware of kind of where your business is at. And then try to shift that. But if you can't, so some industries it's very, very difficult to become totally cash flow positive. Like in that example, my friend Paul still has to, you know, pay for all of this inventory, you know, and the facility and all the equipment and that kind of stuff. But then that's what working capital is. Working capital, which is you know this term used for like money you keep in the bank. But what it really is is working in capital is a requirement of a cash flow negative business because if you're cash flow positive, you don't need working capital. Right? You might need an emergency fund, but if your cash flow positive, then every time someone pays you a transaction, uh, you can use that money to fund the operations and still have profit left over. So, I mean, that's that's like the you know obviously the, the super condensed version of that. But that's the last subject I cover in the book because it's for a lot of entrepreneurs. It's the first one they're like, what, huh? You know, And I did not learn that in economics class, just in case you're wondering. That's a different department, but but it's
2: important. So I got another one for you. So yeah. you were right in this book. It was during COVID or during the period of a lot of crazy stuff was happening. Yes. What's your opinion is... I know we're not in a post-COVID world yet, although a lot of things, at least in my world, have gone kind of back to normal. Traffic's really heavy. People are everywhere. But obviously, we're having another variant going around. But yes. what, what's your take on how things are playing out? Like, Are you shocked by... It seems like businesses are now, at least a lot of them in certain industries are prospering. Does it surprise you? Is it, did you expect it to recover like this? I'd just be curious because as Mm -hmm. you were writing the book, you know, you were talking about, in in fact, the book ends, including this one referring to the, you know, our economic state last year. What are your thoughts around that?
0: Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say is I put how to build the subtitle, like, as you just alluded to, does say how to build a profitable business in any economy, including this one. That's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's, my thought is process is that like, this book is not really specific to COVID. Got it. It's, it, these are actually timeless principles, but five years from now or 20 years from now, you see this in the shelf and someone thinks, wait a minute, how to build a profitable business in any economy? Well, surely not. Cause there's always a crisis, right? It's I mean, but there, there's always a crisis. And she's so like, oh, well, surely not. And then it says, including this one, I guess I'm kind of hoping that that someone's like, man, it says including this one. So I guess we got, I guess I got to buy it, you know? So there's a little bit of a tug-in-cheek there. but Love it. Yeah, but I mean, I, I the reality is, look, business is built on solving problems, right? Entrepreneurship is not solving problems for a profit. So even in a crisis like this one we've been through in the last year and a half, the question is like, well, are there more problems or less problems than there were before? <laughs> and so then whether or not businesses do well, which is not the same thing as saying, like, quote, the economy, which is an oversimplification that economists are guilty as my degree would say, I'm at, least, I'm at least guilty by association. Economists would say like the economy, but like, let's just say businesses for the sake of this conversation, which then affect jobs, which then affect, you know, wealth and savings and all that kind of stuff, whether or not they succeed in a time of crisis really depends on whether or not they're willing to adapt their business model to solve problems. That was the reason why a lot of businesses failed in or a lot of specifically like housing and construction businesses failed in 2008 and still haven't come back. Honestly, that's why we have a housing crisis in the U.S. today. Is that many of the businesses that went out of business in 2008 never came back, and the ones that did got gun shy, and so now they only build like really expensive homes instead of they're not instead of like lots of cheap ones. But uh, in 2001, you know, and before that, actually, like with the dot com bubble, like the companies that did well were the companies that that adapted, you know, and that to solving problems. So solving whatever the problem was that current people have now. I'm glad that the economy on on a whole looks healthier than many people expected, including myself, a year and a half ago. But actually, under the surface, I'm not as convinced because there are so many companies who are. This is why the great resignation is such a is the biggest problem right now. Yeah. Because for the last year and a half, while businesses were figuring out how to pivot and do well and profit, many of them were working their employees to the bone in really unhealthy dynamics that caused them to say, "You know what? I don't need this." And so I think that, you know, there's, there's a shadow side to that for sure. But, you know, but I just read literally this morning, I read that there was an assessment done of many of the employees who've been quitting their jobs during this quote, great resignation and 33% of them left because they want to start a new business. And so that is good news because that adds more wealth to the world.
2: Yeah, it definitely, you know, I interview people uh, on behalf of clients often, and I'm just amazed at how many people that I talk with, they're like, Hey, I'm leaving my job because I want to work remote. Or I want—I have a little side gig going on, or whatever. It's really amazing, and it is there's something here. I, I wonder if it'll have legs. Like I'm curious if you know five years from now, this will still be in existence, or if things will kind of pop back and people get kind of they'll shake out and go back into the workforce, just like it used to be. Or this is kind of like the new way of doing things.
0: We only—we're all time travelers. We just only go one direction <laughs> forward. It's, I don't think we're going back. <laughs> you
1: know, I don't think yeah, we're—I
0: think yeah. we're only going forward. Now, what things from the past do we take with us? That's still to be determined. Yeah, But I think the idea that to be productive, you have to be glued to someone else's desk for eight to 10 hours a day without any freedom, I don't think that one's coming back, at least not mainstream. Um, And that was actually still a new idea in the mid-1900s. I mean, keep in mind, like, quote, the office, even during the Industrial Revolution, the office was like part of the manufacturing facility. So you've got people on the ground making the shoes or making the carpets or making the, rope or whatever it was. And then you've got the office where there's a few people there doing like the office type stuff, but then companies became so huge that you now have entire skyscrapers full of people just doing office jobs who've never seen the production facility. And that's, that's new. That's actually still, I mean, that's a new concept that's less than hundred years old. So the idea that we would say, you know what, maybe that was a little too far. You know, I, I don't think that seems crazy to me when you think about the big picture. Yeah,
2: well, well, I sure love talking with you. I feel like I could talk with you all day. Thank you. I'm curious, is there something you can, an actionable tip you can give us, whether it be for our our business life or our personal life that we can apply today? Anything you got off the top of your mind?
0: Yeah, I I love this. So here's one. Get to know and become really familiar with Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of marketing. Now, he calls it the theory of human motivation. Lots of people call it the hierarchy of needs. I call it the hierarchy of marketing. But the reason why that's important is because this is a, a very simple framework. It's literally like a five-level pyramid of understanding how people work. And if you can get clarity on where your business or where your product fits in that, it's going to simplify your entire sales process, how you write about it, how you talk about it, how you sell it. And so like just, just to refresh, if you're thinking, wait, we covered this back in, like, I don't know, psychology 101 in high school you can look up pictures of this it's also in the book but you know the level one is physiological needs in other words like do you have do you have food do you have water like can you breathe you know things like that and so basically the way it works is that people can only think about things higher up in the pyramid once they've checked the box and those things lower in the pyramid so if you've got food and water and shelter which we're talking in a podcast we've got that so you're listening to this podcast you probably have some level of physiological needs met The next one are your safety needs. Do you have a roof over your head? Do you have an emergency fund? Do you have a reliable source of income? Do you have a way to not be near dangerous, wild animals or crazy people? Those are your safety needs. And the third is love and belonging. Do you have key relationships in your life that fill your heart? Do you have friendships? Do you have romance? Do you have relationships with your kids or your parents? That's all love and belonging. There's a reason why people don't sometimes who have broken relationships don't spend a lot of time on those relationships. And it's usually because they're stuck mentally, psychologically, still focus on meeting their physiological or their safety needs. The fourth is their esteem needs or the respect to your peers. And the fifth is self-actualization, becoming full, achieving full potential. In March 2020, every single person on the planet got knocked down to the bottom rung. Can I breathe? Am I going to die by walking out the door and shaking hands with someone? And as we started learning more about COVID-19 and the risks, and it was like, okay, maybe we're not all going to die. Then it became a little bit more about, okay, now my physiological needs are met. I've got enough toilet paper stocked up, which is a physiological need, right, that I'm okay. Now, then it became about your safety needs, you know? Like, do I have a stimulus money coming in? Do I have a job? Do I have, you know, what am I going to do? You know, who can I trust? And that became this, like, really tense political situation where everybody's going, who can I trust? I can't trust you. I don't know if I feel safe. Once enough people feel safe, they'll start moving into that love and belonging category. But this is where it's different for every person on the planet, right? I mean, some people... Are, have already moved into that love and belonging category. Some people are still stuck at physiological or safety needs. Figure out where your real people are, the people you're serving in your customer. What level are they currently at? And how can you help them move to the next level of the pyramid? Or at least check the box at the current level they're in. And that's going to zero in everything you do in your business.
2: Wow. That's great. Great actionable tip. I like that. I will definitely uh, refresh my memory on that. I did see it in the book. Good. And on on those notes, and I'll put these in the show notes, your link is survive and thrivebook.com, surviveandthrivebook.com. Mm-hmm. The name of the book is Survive and Thrive, How to Build a Profitable Business in Any Economy, including this one. Definitely all those will be in the, in the show notes is at thinktyler.com. Is there anywhere else if people wanted to reach out to you or contact you, you'd like them to go?
0: Well, I would say start there because on that page, you'll see, of course, links where you... So on surviveandthrivebook.com, you'll see links where you can buy the book on Amazon, Audible, if you're an audiobook listener. I read the book myself or... Barnes and Noble, if you still shop there, or if you're listening to this and you're a Barnes and Noble book buyer, <laughs> you know, Kobo, Google Play, Apple Books, all that kind of stuff. But you'll also see a form there where you can download for free a one page playbook that goes with the book that's sort of like a fill in the blank. You know, it's meant to be a one page business plan for your business to apply these principles to, to really thrive. Because, by the way, the book's called Survive and Thrive, but the survive part is supposed to be a quick check mark. Like, let's make sure you can survive, but let's focus most of our energy on the thrive part. And you'll also find links there to where you can join my, you know, well, listen to my podcast, the Thrive School Podcast, or follow me on LinkedIn, which is the only social media platform you'll find me on. So
2: <laughs> well, I sure love what you're doing. You're doing a lot of cool things. Thank I you. love the whole Thrive concept. And you in your book, you really covered a lot of areas that I think people can benefit in terms of building a business and keeping focused on the things that are important. So you can't thank you enough and appreciate you so much for coming onto the show thank you, and sharing your knowledge. I hope you have a great day, man. This is Unapologetically Fab.
0: An Electric Cast production. See you there. Electricast. Hey there, I'm DC. I host The Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites
2: like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena the Interview.
1: Electric acid. electric Electricast.